I'm Richard Edgar, and this podcast is for investment professionals only. Today, we're thinking about the world in 2029. How will we be investing in a decade's time? It's hard enough forecasting what's going to happen tomorrow, so 10 years is a very long time, but we're going to give it a go. What could global markets look like, for example? Will a worldwide recession have reset the economic and corporate clocks? What about the world of asset management itself? How will changing tastes and technology affect the way we invest? Could they even change the way we define investing? And what about ourselves? How might shifts in social norms, in gender equality and other issues around diversity affect our approaches? Joining me in the studio to guide us through these questions and lead us to what I hope will be the sunny uplands of 2029 are Fidelity's Head of Asset Management in Asia, Paris Anand, Wenwen Lindroth, Senior Credit Analyst, and Marty Dropkin, Head of Research for Fixed Income. Well, Paris, first of all, when we're looking at the world in 2029, 10 years from now, are you a glass half full or a glass half empty person? So if we're talking about the real economy, um, global economy, I'm definitely in the in the optimistic camp. There's a quite a big conversation out there at the moment that says that we've had a very sort of extended economic cycle where we're very late cycle is the kind of the term that I hear a lot. And that there is a kind of an expectation that a recession is inevitable. Uh, and the debate is really around how deep will that recession be? Whereas I, I, I look at uh, many factors within the, the global economy and, and could see that actually, as we look at 2019, and actually for sort of five, 10 years beyond that, we may actually be in an extended period of uh, growth for, for the real economy. So that's all right, then. When, when, let me come to you. Um, you work in credit. Do you share this um, optimistic view about um, uh, the economy as we as we go forward? Well, I think the underlying drivers, um, when I look at the U.S., are pretty healthy. Um, Not quite so sure about Europe. I think one maybe uh, out of consensus view I have is that we could see some strong growth in the real economy, but have the markets not perform quite as well over the next 10 years. Okay. And Marty, how about you? What should we be looking out for as we approach the 2020s? I, I, I think the, the thing we need to be prepared for is what, what does the world look like in a, in a low-rate environment if we, if we need to think about that for the longer term? And so rates have clearly risen this year, although have backed off a little bit from that. But I think given the state of growth and given the outlook for inflation, we're probably going to be prepared for a lower-rate environment for some period of time. Long enough to take us through to 2029? Well, it's, that's a long ways off, so it's hard to say for that long of a period. But uh, I, I do think we we might be in this sort of blissful state where we see a modest amount of growth in the in the overall economy and a reasonably low-rate environment that'll, that'll keep things moving along in, in, in a similar direction. I, I would definitely sort of challenge that view. I think that there is a um, you know that this this idea that we are going to sustain a kind of a low rate environment is very much the kind of the environment that we've been over the last ten years. It's it's really the direction we've been in really in the last sort of thirty years. We are classically sort of unprepared for what a change in that environment kind of looks like. And I think one of the things that could take us in that direction is if, for example, we saw that a tightening of monetary policy actually caused the economy to accelerate. And the question is, how could that happen? That seems a very sort of counterintuitive 
perspective. But effectively, I think that what's happened as we've continually reduced the price of money is that actually the velocity of money has collapsed. Uh, so the multiplier effect that people think that you would in- incur by sort of increasing the, the sort of stock of money has not been there. So perversely, you get to a point where you increase taxes so much that actually people, there's a lower propensity to sort of pay taxes. So so you have this almost inverse correlation. You start tightening monetary policy. Um, obviously, that has a positive knock-on effect to the profitability of banks. Banks are prepared to lend again. The multiplier effect kind of kicks in. Um, and, and in those sort of circumstances, you end up with inflation that you're not really prepared for. But first of all, you, you were nodding along to this, um, Marcy. <laughs> so, well, um, yeah. and, 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 you know, th- this is a, a, we're talking about a big picture here. You were talking about the 30 years that have, uh, have been. Yeah. And as we look forward to the next 10, in that big picture sense, um, does that make sense? Where I agree with Paris is on a, a sort of one or two year view. Uh, with the tightening of monetary policy, I, I, I'm fully expecting, as are many people, an increase in volatility. We've already seen that in the last few months. I think we're in a world where that will continue. Um, you know, the the other side to that argument is demographics, and so with an aging population, the the need for for refinancing of of central bank issuance that's going to continue to keep pressure on deficits. There's going to be this counterbalancing effect where central banks and others are going to have to manage down the rates in order to just keep to keep the economy going in a way um, to, to maintain uh, a balance between the cost of debt and the need to refinance that debt. Because it's a very distorted world, isn't it, particularly um, over the last um, 10 years uh, in terms of uh, the money that has gone into the system pumped in there by central banks. Some are arguing that we need um, almost a violent disruption uh, of the status quo um, rather than the slow mechanism of um, demographics that you're talking about, Marty, but something much more violent, Paris, to, to change the, uh, the, the, the landscape. Yes, and I, I think that the disruptive factor that comes into play is that for a very long period of time, it could be the next three or five years, I think that the the, the central banks will position themselves very much behind the curve. Um, but there will come a point where if they feel that they're not able to control the economy, you'll end up with a kind of a, some step changes. But I think what we should also emphasize is that the types of things that we're talking about you know, if they do come to pass, will actually benefit a lot of people in the real economy. How so? Because, for example, you'll get returns to labour, the like of which you haven't had for the last sort of 10 or, 10 or 15 years. So, so, so that the equation between the returns to labour versus the returns to capital will be kind of reordered. And so... And, and the, how will that mechanism uh, happen? How, what, what will be the driver for that? If, if, you, if you start to see wages go up, um, the massive accumulation of, um, of wealth and with the asset owners that that starts to reverse somehow. Mm-hmm. How is that happening? Well, if, if it, so let, let's, let's talk about your starting point at the moment. So you're looking at most economies, most large uh, blocks, um, whether it's sort of Japan or whether it's the, even here in the UK or the US or Europe, you know, your starting point already is that unemployment is, is, is quite low. So there's not a lot of slack in, 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 the, in the system. So any environment which describes the idea that kind of demand surprises on the upside over the next kind of three to three to five years, the, then, then the valve that, that moves is going to be um, real wages. Okay, so that's the, the the people side of it. When when if I turn to you, you would see a compression in margins if wages are going up Indeed. for these companies. What would the impact be there? Because we've had 
um, companies that have been sustained for a long time. They've been able to to carry sure. on because uh, there's not so much inflation. There's cheap money keeping them going. How would that change? I think we will see wage inflation because of the um, the lower slack, um, as well as just political pressure um, in several different countries. In the U.S., for example, a few years ago, um, the election of Trump, also the rise of Bernie Sanders, in my mind, is very much sort of you know in line with the populist fervor, the populist movement, um, those who perhaps lost out over the last 20 to 30 years really coming back to bear on the political landscape. There's a rise in populism uh, in, in many, many places around, around the, the world. How will that, again, if you take this um, on a 10-year view, how do you think that might have shaped things? I mean, it's an almost impossible um, uh, uh, question because it's so broad and so long in, in, in its view. But the, the tectonic plates are definitely shifting, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. But, um, you know, this can also happen through gradual or peaceful means. So as uh, costs go up and labor costs do form a major part of the cost structure of most companies, um, as those costs go up and there's more return to the workers as opposed to the shareholders, as Paris has pointed out, um, that means that profit margins are going to go down. And uh, I guess back to my original point, I think that could also mean pressure on securities. And what about, I mean, uh, primarily your, your, your concern is whether these companies that, that you cover are going to be able to honour the, um, the, the debts that they've taken on. Do you get more worried as you look at the, um, uh, the, the landscape as it, as it begins to change? Certainly. Anything that reduces cash flow is an issue for credits. Um, and so from my point of view, obviously, it would, it's a threat. Um, but at the same time, I think we should also recognize that um, the way that excess value has been allocated over the last 30 years and the way uh, more and more has gone to shareholders, that's a trend that could perhaps be reversed without necessarily really damaging the underlying corporate. Marty? Picking up on, on Wen Wen's comments, there's a, there's a tangent here. And t- sort of tying in what Paris was mentioning is, is that there's this underlying premise that growth is good. And uh, you know, a topic I've been reading a little bit about recently um, is that growth isn't necessarily always good. And uh, you know, if you think I mean, about, that's a, that's a fascinating concept. Well, we're, it is. And so, sitting where so, we're sitting well, right let's think now, about it in the world that. of sustainable investing, right? And the environment and you know the impact on our climate, where coal-fired power plants are, you know, increasing the, the temperature in the world. But the wealthier we are, the more we consume, and well, the more of the world's exactly. resources we're consuming. And that's you know, so growth leads to more, you know, the need for more power plants. It leads to you know more, more sort of toxic uh, things put, putting into the environment. So what if we end up in a world where, um, and it's a bit conceptual, where we decide that we need to reduce the amount of output um, and that that is considered good for the you know, it's for the greater good of humanity. I know it's a bit it's a bit pie in the sky, but it is a concept out there. And you could see over the next ten years, you know, with pollution on the rise, that this is this is a concept that will become a reality in many countries. So Paris, you talked about a different way of measuring um, growth, but perhaps it's a different way of valuing uh, things altogether, whether mm-hmm. it's assets or whether it's the way that an economy is um, is developing. Yes, sort of whether we look at it at the level of organizations or we look at it at the level of economies, we will have a much deeper sense of balance or looking at things in the round. 
Um, so whilst I I would you know disagree that you know w- with Marty that growth is is you know I, I think I think we will we are likely to see you know and 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 we'll continue to see sort of growth in 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 the in the economy. I think that there will be a much greater attenuation to the broader stakeholders within within that sort of growth. So I think where we're moving from is a world where we had a very singular concept of what good growth was. It is an interesting point though, isn't it? That if we're using I hope up. So. Uh, no, <laughs> But yours is interesting, and so was Martin's. <laughs> that if we're if we're using up the world's resources, I wonder in ten years' time, the the way you value assets might not be based on um, uh, profit or uh, whatever the, uh, the the EBITDA. You know, it's not going to be the same um, calculation. Yeah, so I think I mean, look, my, my my theory on this is that you know, much more it will be it will be based around the view of duration. So if you look at the you know, the, the fundamental acceleration that we're seeing in the creative destructive process around sort of corporate. So, you know, going from uh, 40, 50 years, about sort of 25, 30 years ago to, you know, forecast to be uh, 14 years and probably lower by the time we get to 2029, then actually the, the, there'll be much more attenuation to terminal value than it will be in terms of short term profits. Okay, when, when? I uh, just wanted to add to um, this idea that maybe our parameters and are changing. Um, maybe going forward, it's not going to be all about earnings per share or return on equity. We are looking at other ways to value companies and attach you know, long-term value to them. Um, but I think that uh, definitions and parameters are getting uh, redefined on all different fronts as well. For example, we're rethinking GDP and questioning whether that is the right way to measure growth and sustainability in an economy. That brings us to our next topic, actually, which is about the uh, the disruption within asset management itself. Uh, Marty, let me let me come to you. Do you expect that to continue? Where will the industry be in in twenty twenty nine? You know, clearly, we're in a world where fees fees are going down. The data is more and more plentiful. And so the, the need to figure out what to do with that data, how we incorporate it in, in our analysis is, is only, you know, the velocity of that is increasing. The way clients uh, look at look at potentially investing versus the way, uh, you know, an asset manager will look at it versus an asset owner. I think there's a lot of different topics to, to, to discuss there. I mean, one of the core ones that I think is near and dear to, to the fixed income world is how can we continue to embed a quantitative element to fundamental research more and more. And clearly, we're already doing that. Topics like behavioral finance are, 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 have entered into the, into the scope of thinking in the last number of years, and we're doing a lot of that ourselves. But how do we continue to embed that? How do we utilize that data? How do we process it more efficiently? Um, you know, clearly, we'll always need to meet with management teams and to, uh, you know, try to get a sense of corporate governance. Uh, that clearly brings in an ESG theme to it. But how do we pick pick apart data that enables us to to look at that even more more in a so more efficient way? Quant beginning to pervade mm. uh, investment at every level, and I suppose everyone will be at it. It's a quant arms race. What well, is and, and you know what does quant mean, right? So uh, I'm not talking about uh, macro investing here, where you're looking for changes in minutia about treasury rates. I'm talking about how we can use big data, how we can use artificial intelligence to drive better decision making. I think we're at the early stage of that right now. Uh, you know, we've, we're already embedding nudges into our, our investment platform where perhaps we're 
enabling analysts and portfolio managers to look at a wider range of investments just by utilizing the data better. I think the more we sort of embed that into the process, the more we'll keep on. It'll be a circular a circular benefit to the whole process. And you mentioned uh, fees. How will they change and how they're presented to, to clients? Yeah, I knew you would bring that up. Um, <laughs> More efficient and more transparent. Yeah, transparency. Well, transparency is a given, I think. Clients are demanding it. Asset owners are demanding it. Or, you know, we will have to expose our views a little bit more efficiently and, and a little bit more quickly. You know, I, I think the fee structures are, are going to be compressed in a way that we will have to just make sure that our analyst teams and our portfolio management teams are just utilizing the data the best they can. And just taking that idea of transparency, Wen-Wen, how important do you think that will be to the investors of, of 10 years from now? I think it will be particularly important to the up-and-coming uh, millennial generation. Um, by 2029, they still won't, you know, form a majority of assets under management. Um, according to the um, to studies, it'll be something like 16%. But uh, in terms of what's important to them, transparency ranks very highly. So a small uh, group still, but becoming more influential. Indeed. In fact, I think their cultural impact is probably going to be bigger than the actual assets what, under management. Because they are leading on culture and technology is changing so quickly, changing the way that we relate to each other, even for the older people like us in this room. (laughs) We are being led by the younger people. And and Paris, um, how do you think, looking at the industry as a whole, Mm -hmm. how do you think it might change? Um, Is it, um, as as Wen-Wen's saying, it's being led by the louder voices of people with different um, views? Or um, you've given lots of um, uh, ideas about on the economic side Mm -hmm. of how things are changing. Yeah, so I I have um, quite a different view uh, on thinking about the sort of the medium-term prospects for the industry. And, And a big part of that is influenced by you know, just remembering that there are very few things in uh, the world of, of markets and investments that are kind of structural and actually things do work in cycles. And I actually think that there could be a very real prospect that we look at the industry in 10 years time and actually what we've done is rediscover the value of active investment and rediscover the value of fundamental analysis. Now, why do I say that? Well, I, well, I, was, I was going to say yeah. you would say that, wouldn't you? Well, absolutely. As, as, Warren, <laughs> as Warren Buffett would say, never ask a barber if you need a haircut. But I do feel that in the last 10 years, and particularly in the last five years, we've seen a boom in um, the types of strategies that really think not about a share or or a security as being a part ownership of a business, but really as being a kind of a price that correlates with other prices. So thinking about things like factor investing or smart beta or outcome orientating investing, they're not really interested in um, the share as a unit of, of the underlying company. They're, they're actually looking at sort of shares and their, and their sort of common behavioral kind of characteristics. So in a sense, they're, 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 they're sort of one step abstracted from reality. And therefore, if you are, as I was saying earlier, in an environment where some of those fundamentals are going to change more profoundly over the next 10 years, then you can't live in that world of extra abstraction. You know, most innovation in finance actually ends up kind of turning in on itself after a period of time. So I'm always wary about terms like structural, like innovative, like, you know, I mean, I don't think you know, disruption, I don't think applies to our to our industry as a kind of, you know, as a phrase. Okay, but well, it, that, that, that's 
that, that's that's quite a profound thought um, that it's it, it will carry on as it has done. Yeah. And when when? Well, I mean, I think uh, the client's needs and what they're interested in and what they want to achieve is going to require more active management and more innovation. Um, you know, if I may use that word, sure. in in terms of how we provide that service when we think about baby boomers and you know so many of them retiring and uh, living longer, needing to save more, some of them needing to work longer. You know, they have very specific needs that they need to have filled. Um, and then when I think about like the two probably, you know, largest up and coming groups, well, millennials, Gen X, and then also women in how, you know, the differences in how these groups want to invest their money, it's going to take more active management. You've, you've taken us to another area that I'd like to cover as well, um, which is diversity and inclusion, because I know that that's something that you're a champion of, that the concept um, of diversity and inclusion is not new, but the Me Too movement seems to have given it very much more urgency. How do you think that is going to um, be reflected in asset management? I think that the Me Too movement is going to have a very lasting impact on business in general um, because what it's done is sort of pulled back the curtain on uh, power imbalances in the workplace. And I see this as sort of being very much, um, you know, attached to the entire women's movement that kind of erupted uh, in 2017 with the Women's March, etc. Um, so the way I would talk about this is not to just focus on gender diversity, but to think about the quality of a management team and whether they are incorporating cognitive diversity. And it's not so much that I go in and take a look at the board or take a look at the management team and really analyze it for you know diversity. However, you can see that when a company is really able to navigate risks well, it's because it's got the right combination of people making the decisions. There's been a lot of research done about the benefits of cognitive diversity, how they it increases profit margins, return on equity. Um, generally speaking, you have lower leverage. I, I mean, I mean, simply put, Richard. I mean, I think that for any company in any industry, any organisation, the environment is getting more complex. Success factors, as we've talked about, are are getting less homogenous, and hence, I think you need in any industry, much more of a kind of a multidisciplinary mindset and much more kind of cognitive diversity in order to succeed. Also, I think that there's a kind of a deeper recognition that given that you need to um, ensure that you're attaining any advantage that you can, with the lack of diversity means that you're not even mirroring the diversity of your own customers. So, you know, you've, you've got that kind of um, uh, responsibility as well. So I think this is going from something which, a bit like, you know, we talked about with, with other sustainability factors, these are things that have been talked about as, as kind of nice to have things. I think that they're becoming absolutely fundamental. So that's how it feels at the moment, casting our minds forward a decade. What sort of conversation are we going to be having about this um, then? I, I, mean, I wanted to tie it back into something that we've, we've all talked about, which is transparency. Uh, you, you know, the challenge for asset management is to, to continue to attract the best talent that we can, uh, whether that be uh, you know, approaching gender diversity, racial diversity, educational diversity. Um, and transparency is only going to help there, I think. And you know that has to start in schools. That has to start fairly early on. So if we if we want uh, you know to attract more females, more more uh, people from different backgrounds and to, to this industry, then we will have to start start to you know embrace it within the educational system. 
But I think the more we kind of open that up and show what asset management is, then, then I think the more we'll be able to attract the right talent. And Wenwen, if you think about your companies and the discussions that you're having outside the company, um, as well as, as, as within, what do you expect to be talking about in 10 years' time? In fact, I think if we succeed, we won't be talking about it anymore. It will just be a given and we will be post-gender, post-race. Is 10 years uh, long enough to achieve that? I think that's a little optimistic. (laughs) But uh, looking further out, um, the goal is to not to need to focus so much on this because it it just is a given. And briefly, Paris, um, what do you think in 10 years' time? What sort of conversations? So I think we'll be having a very different conversation in 10 years' time. And I think the different conversation will be that less of our people might look to doing their entire career in one industry and that there may be a greater propensity for people to do a period of time in uh, finance, a period of time in software, a period of time in media and these sort of portfolio careers which we currently associate with sort of much more senior um, uh, people in terms of their late stage of their career. They might start much earlier and that's maybe something as an organisation that we'll have to equip ourselves for. It sounds like a very different world in some ways but some constants too so hopefully the best of both awaits us in 2029. Paris, thank you very much indeed. Also to Marty and Wenwen, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.